This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. All right, well, we have a little bit of good news to lead with on this Friday. The jobs numbers came out, and the U.S. economy created 517,000 new jobs, more than half a million, dropping the unemployment rate to 3.4%, which is the lowest level since 1969, when the economy was absolutely booming. But wait, wait. Oh, I see. It's not good news. The Federal Reserve isn't happy with this. Uh, Low inflation? No. How can this be? Creating all these jobs? It's very hard to explain why something that would seem like good news to most people is not necessarily viewed favorably by the markets or the Federal Reserve, which is trying to sort of slow the economy and engineer a so-called soft landing. But... I'm looking at this, and, you know, there was a Fox poll, I'll get to more of that in a second, um, showing that people were really down on the economy, thought the economy was really bad. Now, maybe that was their perception, not in their own personal situation, but, and inflation, you know, has certainly come down significantly, uh, but it's still pretty bad. So I can understand that. It's sort of a half glass, half full glass, half empty. But Do you know how rare it is to have an economy with 3.4%? That's basically full employment. That basically means anybody who wants a job can get one. And I just read a little item saying restaurants are having a hard time getting workers because they're leaving for better jobs. So it's a muddle, you know, trying to spend your life trying to figure out Wall Street and the Fed is a difficult thing. I, for one, like when people are working or have the chance to work. So we have that 3.4% unemployment. You know, I've been looking at a lot of Fox polls lately. There's a new one that came out. It was released in two batches because uh, for the second straight night, I was on the special report panel, um, just part of the job. Unusual to be on two nights in a row, but I've enjoyed it. And by the way, let me say to you, listening out there in podcast land, hope you have a good weekend coming up. And we are making our changes to media buzz as we do every Friday. And that will be uh, on Fox, 11 a.m. Eastern. Hope you'll have a chance to catch it. So the new part of the poll, because I've talked about other parts of the poll, that really sort of stopped me had to do with the views of Ukraine. The United States, of course, giving money to Zelensky and his government. You look at the partisan breakdown, and it's really eye-opening. So Republicans surveyed uh, 51% of them favor U.S. continuing to supply money to Ukraine. 55% of them favor America providing, continuing to provide weapons. The contrast there with Democrats on both money and weapons, Democrats, 79% in favor on both scores. That's 8 in 10 of Democrats think it's a good idea. This explains a lot to me because it explains why the House Republicans um, have real qualms about continuing to provide this level of support for Ukraine. Because a lot of their voters, a lot of the people who are part of their base, 
don't like this. And that's why you hear increasingly phrases like, well, we can't have a blank check. And, uh, you know, that money could do a lot of good if it was spent here at home. I mean, it's a classic populist argument, spending money on foreign policy goals or spending it on domestic matters. But it helped me to understand a little bit better why the GOP is not fully on board. And, you know, in my own view, which you're probably familiar with by now, you know, it is vitally important that we continue to supply Ukraine with money and weapons. And we always seem to do it like two months too late. Well, we can't possibly, um, you know, give them fighter jets. Okay, here's some fighter jets or Patriot missiles or whatever. I understand the counterargument. It's a huge amount of money. But basically, Ukraine, and we're up against the first anniversary of the war, is fighting for the West, is fighting for NATO against Putin. The war criminal read the other day uh, about 200,000 casualties for Russia. So completely unprovoked war, all about Putin's ego and territorial ambitions, killing a lot of his own people, promising more, uh, even, you know, saber-rattling now and then against nuclear weapons. Ukraine is doing our job, and you don't have to have a single American soldier on the ground. That's why I favor aid at this high level. I don't even think we have a choice. But some Republicans view it differently. If only half of Republicans in this Fox poll say it's worth it to give them money, you can understand the politics. I, I'm puzzled in trying to figure out this Chinese surveillance balloon. Uh, U.S. officials saying yesterday is collecting intelligence over the U.S. right now that the Pentagon had briefly considered shooting it down before deciding that would be too risky. Uh, the balloon traveling at an altitude well above commercial air traffic. Um, but oddly enough, I've also read when this first was disclosed that there have been other balloons like this, and this is not sort of out of the question. And by the way, before you get all huffy about it, the U.S. uses spy satellites. The U.S. was embarrassed when one of its uh, planes, a U-2 spy plane, got shot down uh, or crashed over the Soviet Union in 1960. It's an embarrassment for President Eisenhower. So I don't know how outrageous it is. I do know that Tony Blinken is supposed to have talks in Beijing uh, in a couple of days. But that is now off. In fact, we just got word that the Secretary of State has postponed his visit to Beijing because of the balloon controversy. So this is causing quite the diplomatic ruckus. All right, that's as much as I know about it. Uh, seems a little bit weird to be exercised about a balloon when there are so many satellites in the sky with all countries, including America, uh, collecting intelligence. But there you have it. All right. Story number one, Kevin McCarthy barely had the votes, but he did succeed in kicking Ilhan Omar off the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Total party line vote. And it's been a kind of a fascinating case study because House Republicans obviously were going after Omar. They'd already kicked off uh, Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell from the Intel Committee. But McCarthy is citing repeated anti-Semitic and anti-American remarks. Uh, resolution passed 218 to 211, with only one Republican rep uh, voting present. 
Now, this obviously has caused a huge stir. And, you know, I keep turning on the TV and saying, like, Kevin McCarthy, is he engaging in payback? Well, yeah, it's Nancy Pelosi who started this. It's Nancy Pelosi who decided that uh, two Republican members, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, couldn't serve on any committees. And the Republicans warned at the time, well, when we were in the majority, we're going to follow that path. And also, it's not like Omar can't serve on any committees. She'll serve on a bunch of committees, just not this one. Uh, AOC was on the floor. She seemed pretty emotional about it. She said this is about targeting women of color in the United States of America. And Omar herself went on to talk about uh, a couple things. One is this is about who gets to be an American. What opinions do you have to have to be counted as American? That's what this debate is about. There is the idea that you are suspect, that you are suspect if you are an immigrant or if you are from a certain part of the world or a certain skin tone or a Muslim. And she also talked about the death threats that she'd been tweeting, uh, she's been getting, and she tweeted uh, one that was full of expletives, I'll put a bullet in your effing head and get the F out of the country. Well, I hate to see anybody getting death threats, but all public figures do. Um, look, I understand the sensitivity, but what's, what's glossed over here is two points. One is the one I just made, that the House Democrats started this. But secondly, although it's in Omar's interest and it's in the interest of the Democrats to portray this as an unfair attack on a woman of color, she was absolutely lambasted when she started talking about a couple of years ago, it's all about the Benjamin's baby and, uh, and making anti-Israel remarks. I mean, she's entitled not to support the state of Israel. That's fine. But she said things that were so anti-Semitic and so clearly played into the tropes about, you know, Jews have all the money and so forth. They don't care about money. That the Democrats ripped her. So it's not like one party says this is fine and one party says this is not fine. The Democrats ripped her and they had a resolution which ended up getting kind of watered down to include any kind of bigotry or prejudice. Um, Hakeem Jeffries, Democratic leader, this is about political revenge. Well, let's say it is. There's one possibly good thing that came out of this, and that is, I guess, in order to get one of the final votes that he needed, uh, McCarthy said that they, they, should, they should take a look at what the standards are for any member of Congress to be removed from committees. And you would know exactly what was expected of you, and therefore, uh, you know, people could say it was more fair than just being the whim of whoever happens to be Speaker. I think that's a good idea. I don't know if it goes anywhere, but uh, tensions are running very high about this. Uh, oh, here it is. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Republican South Carolina, said she'd support a resolution, um, new rules about when you can get bumped from your committee. All right, number two, Hunter Biden. So just as you might expect, with Hunter Biden's very aggressive Washington lawyer, Abby Lowell, who I've known forever, sending out these um, explosive letters portraying the president's son as a victim and insisting that there be investigations of his various political enemies um, 
And this is a whole list that includes Rudy Giuliani. It includes Steve Bannon. He goes after a guy named John Paul MacIsaac. He is the Delaware computer repair guy uh, where Hunter Biden took his laptop. That was a bright move and then never picked it up. And apparently, according to what I've been reading, uh, there's some kind of thing he signed or it's a standard policy that if you don't pick up your laptop in 90 days, you forfeited it. So the idea that they can now say, well, we, we need to be an investigation of this guy, Mac Isaac, and, and you know, he had unauthorized access uh, to this laptop, and that's unfair. Um, you know, good luck with all that. I don't think it changes the thing. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's purely a PR strategy to get out in front of the House Republican hearings next week, which will be on Hunter Biden's laptop and, indeed, Hunter Biden himself. So Andy McCarthy, not to be confused with Kevin McCarthy, uh, former federal prosecutor in New York, a National Review contributor, whose judgment I trust because he has called out his own side, whether it's writing about Donald Trump or Hunter Biden. So he says that Hunter is playing the victim card. And it's a distraction from the main issue, which is Joe Biden. So what Andy writes is that if Hunter and his lawyers really believed that a criminally action, actionable um, theft of maybe his, but maybe not his laptop. I'll just digress here to say, you know, everybody, all the journalists called us out and said, look, after two years, he's finally admitting it's his laptop. And then the lawyers had to backtrack and put out a statement saying, no, we're not admitting that at all. It might be his laptop, might not be his laptop. Uh, there could be, you know, data on there, but come on. I mean, it took a year and a half, but the New York Times and Washington Post, following the New York Post at the end of the 2020 campaign, authenticated that it was his laptop, and there were a lot of emails in there that had been verified. So this whole, like, it's not his laptop thing is not even worth spending any more breath on. Anyway, uh, McCarthy disposes of that, and he said if Hunter really believed what he's saying, he would have sued. He would have sued for damages, brought a civil suit to say that his laptop had been misused and this is a violation, um, but that didn't happen. Never filed such a lawsuit, never filed, never accused Mac Isaac until now of property theft. And so, aside from what appears to be the lack of a case, says Andy McCarthy, Hunter presumably did not sue because that would have opened him up to extensive discovery and testimony. Yeah, I could see where that might make people think twice. He'd also be a necessary witness in any criminal prosecution. So... I don't know, uh, is, is, is any prosecutor going to pay any attention? Would you be tripping over yourself, the National Review piece says, to indict a case in which Hunter is your main witness? This is a publicity stunt. Now, I mentioned the other day that in addition, part of all the letters that were sent out um, has to do with Hunter Biden's lawyer saying that Fox News should correct certain mistakes made by opinion hosts or there would be a defamation suit or there was the possibility of a defamation suit. So Tucker Carlson spent a lot of time on his show last night. And in fairness, let me just read some of what he said. Uh, he said, in other words, we believe the government, he's kind of mocking the Hunter argument here, should send these people to jail for possessing stolen property that belonged to Hunter Biden. But that so-called property may not actually exist. It may not even belong to Hunter Biden. That's their argument. 
It's a novel legal theory, actually. It's so novel, it's totally incoherent. It's like prosecuting somebody for stealing your imaginary car. Um, Biden also, uh, excuse me, Tucker also noting the 90-day rule. And then Hunter Biden violated the contract that he signed with the Delaware store. uh, And he violated it because he was a crackhead who was having an affair with his sister-in-law, at least three of his employees, and countless strippers and hookers, while at the same time trying to execute illicit business deals with the Chinese. So he just didn't have time to return for his laptop. That makes sense. He was very busy. Uh, Tucker also says, so here you have John Paul MacIsaac, small business owner, who lives in a small, corrupt state controlled by the Biden family. He's the peasant in this scenario. And then you have Hunter Biden. He's the princeling. One other point, circling back to the Andy McCarthy piece, is that with Giuliani being named in the Hunter letters, that the Southern District of New York, which Rudy Giuliani ran when he was U.S. attorney there, I covered him for part of that time, and where Andy McCarthy served in the Southern District, um, did investigate Giuliani and closed the investigation late last year without bringing charges. So that ought to tell you something. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right, number three. How is it? I mean, if I was trying to write the greatest novel ever, I couldn't conjure up a character like George Santos. And how is it that he manages to be in the news every single day, even though he doesn't want to be? Just a quick example. I've talked before. I talked on Media Buzz about uh, the disabled veteran who raised $3,000 to get surgery for his dying therapy dog and who charges that... um, George Santos just made off with the money. Federal investigators are now looking into that. The FBI has questioned this guy, which tells you the FBI must be conducting a pretty thorough investigation. But anyway, the latest news is a surreptitiously recorded conversation by a guy named Derek Myers, who was in uh, Santos's office to try to get a job. It's a bizarre thing. I've listened to some of it. Um, and the reason that Myers was called in is that Santos, who I guess is probably having trouble hiring staff, you think, um, had seen some articles that were detrimental to him. So he was trying to decide whether to hire him or not. And Santos says on this audio recording, secretly recorded, we're not here to judge you. And then he laughs and says, I'm in no position to judge media. And Myers has this convoluted story about how he went to Colombia to get Botox. And Santos says, you went to Colombia to get Botox? He says, yeah, it's only 100 bucks there, um, but it's 400 bucks here. I don't know if it's that high. Having no experience with this whatsoever, trust me. Um, but he said he could fly for free and so on. And then, you know, this guy is sort of rattling on, babbling on. Uh, as Santos said, stop going to Colombia if you're a diluted Botox. Um, and then 
Myers says, well, I can understand why you wouldn't trust me. I mean, is he secretly recording this conversation right now? And the Long Island congressman informs this guy that if you do tape record something in a federal office building without the knowledge of the other person, you could face five to seven years in prison. And so he says... You know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm a threat and a concern to this institution. You're George Santos. So they yuck it up about that. And and Myers says, of course, I'm not recording this, but of course he is. Uh, anyway, he goes into this whole case about how he was investigated in Ohio. It's not terribly interesting. He ultimately wasn't charged, he said. Um, he said he, Myers said he contacted Talking Points Memo. That's the liberal site run by Josh Marshall. And I should have said at the top, that's the one that obtained this audio recording. Um, Because he wanted the world to know about this conversation. Uh, Myers requested not to publish the audio until he had one last chance to go in and ask for his job back. Uh, They discussed his future. Um, They're talking about his tie. You can have it for, if you want. I get these ties for $2 in a thrift store. This is not a guy with a lot of money, uh, I guess you would say. Uh, and then Myers said, are you firing me? I guess he thought he was a lock for the job. And Santos gave a kind of a garbled response. Um, let's just see if there's anything else. Oh, this is interesting. From my understanding, recording of him building a federal crime. And then he says, I'm texting with Don Lemon. Don Lemon, the CNN morning host. Don Lemon just texted me. I'm sorry, I'm listening to you. Don Lemon just texted me. Santos sounds giddy that he's getting a text from a guy who works for CNN while he's interviewing this other guy about whether he's going to hire him for his staff. Um, And then Myers said, well, that was insulting. He's telling this, I guess, to TPM. And it hurt my feelings. Uh, Santos says, I've made bad judgment calls and I'm reaping the consequences of those bad judgment calls. I've obviously effed up and lied to him like I lied to everybody else, Santos said. And he gave me a second shot. Um, Talking about his chief of staff. A little puzzling there because you're just reading these snippets. Anyway, Santos decided not to hire this guy. Uh, He said, it's bad enough I have to answer for myself these days. I don't want to have to answer prospectively for you. And there goes the job that could have paid for more Botox. So he will now have to go to Columbia to get his cut rate Botox. And he will have to buy his ties at a thrift store for two or three bucks. Um, It just goes to show you. I I mean, I'm still thinking this is not just a movie. It's a Netflix series. But in a more serious vein. I mean, George Santos uh, is under investigation. He's got serious problems explaining all this money that came into his campaign, was it a personal loan from him? Originally said yes, then he said no. He doesn't even have a treasurer right now. He put somebody down as, as the treasurer, and that person said, no, no, I'm not the treasurer. Um, it's a friggin' mess. But it's not without its entertainment value. Uh, these characters, I mean, you just can't make them up. It's like Cato Kalin during the OJ trial. Who could imagine such a character? Well, I'm glad that He gets the text with Don Lemon, but I don't think that's his most important problem right now. Okay, number four has to do with Donald Trump. 
and Republicans. And the Washington Post has this piece that kind of walks through how 2024 is not going to be like 2016. Uh, I think this probably spins out of the thing I've talked about for a couple of days, which is the notion that many Republican officials and former officials don't want Trump to be their nominee, but they're pussies. They don't want to say anything about it. They're afraid to take him on. Or you could say they're afraid to take on his base because Donald Trump, we'll see, Nikki Haley runs against him, Ron DeSantis probably, but he has this really strong base. And if any, you know, we've learned this from past elections. If a sitting Republican member of Congress appears to be breaking with Trump, the base is going to make that person pay. He would need, he or she would need some um, votes, especially in a Republican primary, especially if you piss off Trump and he decides to go against you in a Republican primary. Anyway, high-ranking Republicans don't want Donald Trump to be their 2024 nominee, but they're afraid he'll win by recycling his 2016 strategy. Carve out a populist base, keep the anti-Trump majority divided between multiple opponents, and emerge as the winner. Uh, I think that that is accurate. What these Republican leaders don't realize is that Trump has changed over the last eight years, and this is where it gets interesting, or semi-interesting. Hopefully I'll make it even more interesting than it would otherwise be. So Trump's opponents are going into, whenever they get around to it, a new race, but they're still sort of fighting the last war, 2016. The 2016 Trump campaign, which I covered and interviewed Donald Trump half a dozen times for Media Buzz, I've known the guy since the late 1980s when I was based in New York, the 2016 campaign was an insurgency. He found his base, this Washington Post piece says, by blasting his message through cable. He shunned the establishment. He flouted conservative doctrine. That is true. I remember talking to Trump about, you know, he was saying no cuts to Medicare and Medicaid. He didn't seem terribly concerned about the level of federal spending. He certainly was conservative on a lot of cultural and other issues. But by and large, he was this outsider. I mean, who expected, you know, this reality show guy to win against 16 GOP opponents in the primary and then win the presidency? Not a lot of people, trust me. I've talked to a lot of journalists about this at the time, and they were all like, yeah, you know, he's doing well now, but, uh, you know, yeah, he's not going to win the nomination. Yeah, he won't get past Iowa. Well, he was president for four years, as you might recall. Anyway, uh, the piece goes on to say that, you know, Trump is also campaigning differently. He's not holding the big rallies. I think that's in part because it takes a lot of time and effort and money to draw a huge crowd. He's hosting small events in early primary states. That would explain the trip to uh, New Hampshire and South Carolina just last week, I believe. He's more like a front runner. He's not running against conservative dogma. And he's no longer a highly divisive figure within the GOP. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think he is a highly divisive figure. I'm not as divisive as that Atlantic piece made him out to be, but... Clearly, the establishment and what remains of the Republican establishment wants to move on from Donald Trump. They're afraid of losing this election, as 
Trump did in presiding over elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022. Lost his job, lost the House, lost the Senate. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Trump registers just under 50% in national primary polls, but his favorability rating is above 70%. I did not see a poll to that effect. His plurality coalition could easily grow into a majority. So Trump is no longer an outsider, says this piece, who needs to throw elbows, rely uh, on a thin plurality, or hope the opposition stays divided. He's a former president, the ultimate party insider, with a path to an outright majority. So if any people within the Republican Party want to stop Donald Trump in 2024, um, they need to look at this as a whole different situation than 2016. You're talking about a highly divisive, highly controversial, but beloved by a segment of the right, former president of the United States. And we won't know what GOP voters are going to do until uh, early next year. But we'll see. You know, if all these people get in, Pompeo and Nikki and Pence and a bunch of others, Asa Hutchinson, if they all get in, they're playing into Trump's hands. He could win primary with 25% if there's a whole bunch of candidates. If there's only one or two candidates or there's more, but then it gets winnowed down before the early primary states, um, that's a different situation. Which brings me to wrap up with story number five, which also happens to involve Trump, but also Kevin McCarthy. So the other day, and this is how it was reported, the House Speaker broke with Marjorie Taylor Greene, remember, she was an absolute key ally of his and helped him win over the more right-wing faction that was absolutely like never Kevin. And that's how he became speaker. But he broke with her yesterday when he was asked about the death of Ashley Babbitt. I'm sure you remember she was shot and killed by Capitol Police on January 6th when she was inside that door. We've seen the footage. And this mob had broken in and the Capitol Police were outside. McCarthy told reporters, I think the police officer did his job. But Marjorie Taylor Greene's position is that, that Ashley Babbitt was murdered by the police. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, using similar language, said it was very tragic when Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Uh, I agree the whole thing is a tragedy, and I wish that she was still alive. But the Capitol Police, uh, a few months later, about six to seven months later, said the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt would not face even internal discipline proceedings following an investigation. So that did not sit well with the 45th president of the United States, who went on True Social and said, I totally disagree with the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, in that the police officer thug who has a very checkered past to begin with, I don't know if that's true, was not just doing his job when he shot and killed great patriot Ashley Babbitt at point-blank range while he's on the other side of a door. Um, despite trying to keep him anonymous, shielded, and protected, this misfit proudly showed up on NBC fake nightly news bragging about the killing. Again, that's his characterization. And uh, Trump goes on to say Ashley Babbitt was murdered. Now, one more thing here. And it's interesting to me because if Trump was still president or was covered differently, 
then these posts on True Social, remember he's going to be allowed back on Facebook. He could tweet, but he hasn't so far. Has to do with Bill Maher. I never quite get why Trump, I got it when he was president and he felt like the media were attacking him all the time and he would single out people by name, journalists, anchors, you name it. Um, but Bill Maher, a host, of course, of HBO's Real Time, um, you know, is, is a very liberal guy who thinks that liberalism has gotten too woke. And so sometimes he calls out his own side, which makes him interesting, not predictable, and also of interest to people who want to pick up on his, well, the, the Democrats have gone too far, the liberals have gone too far in this or that. It doesn't change the fact that he is still a left-wing guy. So, true social. Uh, he seems particularly pissed off because um, Fox News sometimes airs Bill Maher clips. And CNN has announced, and you know how Trump feels about CNN, um, that on Friday nights they will air some web-only segments that uh, Maher does. So, uh, in the former president's telling... It amazes me that Fox News and soft conservatives immediately put up Bill Maher on their network when he makes a statement that is close to normal, Trump wrote. They think they're being so cool, but MAGA people and real conservatives view them as fools playing right into the radical left's hands and don't like it. Bill Maher is a low ratings sleazebag. Okay, this is where it kind of heats up, in case you weren't getting that who should never be shown on a conservative network. Now, this is fascinating to me. So Donald Trump thinks that no other point of view should be shown on a network like Fox, when obviously there are a bunch of liberal contributors and employees who work here. I mean, I, this is like when he went off on Jessica Tarloff. Yes, Jessica Tarloff is on The Five and other shows because she's a liberal and she does battle um, with the right, with the conservative panelists. And he went after her in such a personal way, talking about her voice and a whole bunch of other stuff. Anyway, low ready sleazebag, back tomorrow. He doesn't believe in anything we stand for and never will. He's laughing at you for being weak and stupid. Uh, this is not the first time he's, go, going, he's gone after Mara before. And I don't know, um, you know, Trump has this view of the media like this should not be allowed, I guess, because he watches a lot of TV and he hates Bill Maher or there's just something about the way Bill Maher conducts himself as a liberal who kind of knows how to get under Donald Trump's skin. There's just something that pisses Trump off. So, again, you know, this is good for the podcast and sometimes I read these things online, but. Donald Trump is not getting the kind of coverage, with rare exceptions, when he's going after media people like Marr, people on the left, or even some people on the right if they say something that pisses him off. Um, it's kind of like a sidebar. Now, that will change, I think, once we get more fully into primary season and we see how the former president is faring. But... I guess he just, you know, he has grievances. I realize that's not a revelation. 
And so whether it's Bill Maher or anybody else who says anything, I mean, he used to call Don Lemon dumb as a rock. And he just, you know, he's the master of the insult. I wonder whether or not that's lost its sting. You know, we've had six years of Trump bashing the press and in fairness, the press bashing him that I, I, it doesn't feel like a, a, a fresh thing anymore. It just feels like the old enemy of the people. Maybe that plays to what the MAGA base wants. We shall find out. Once again, hope you have a great weekend. Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 Eastern on Fox. Uh, I guess this is the point where I thank you for listening. And we're back here on Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.